I distinctly remember being in a movie theater in Boston back in April 2015. This was just one year removed from Ebb Kofleski's big win at the Boston Marathon. Most writers were focusing on that, and it felt like everything that had been said about that race was already written or it could just be rewatched on YouTube. But there were still some scenes from that race in a documentary called City Slickers Can't Stay With Me, the Coach Bob Larson story, and they brought me chills. I don't know how, because the Mebster had been everywhere. Maybe it was just seeing it on a much bigger screen enhanced the viewing experience that much. I think that probably wasn't it. I think what it was was that in that movie, you really got to see the buildup to that great moment and learned the story about the man behind Meb's success. And this is the same guy who's behind the resurgence of an entire country's distance running culture. Bob Larson's story is told in great detail in a new book by Matthew Futterman called Running to the Edge, A Band of Misfits and the Guru Who Unlocked the Secrets of Speed. There's some really good stories and lessons in that book, and we'll touch on some of those in this episode. I'm your host, Chris Chavez, and this is the Sidious Mag Podcast. Before we get to today's show, this episode of the City Smack Podcast on the City of Smack Podcast Network is brought to you by the Rambling Runners' new podcast called Road to the Olympic Trials. I highly recommend it. They're six episodes deep, including an emergency podcast that dropped last week that explains the major news that the U.S. Olympic Marathon Trials have been issued gold label status by the IAAF. So what that means is that the top three in both the men's and women's races will head to Tokyo, and you don't really have to deal with too much standard confusion anymore. So uh, Matt Chittum, who is the host, really breaks that down in great detail, so you get the full lowdown on that podcast. Plus, if you catch the most recent episode, you get to meet Sarah Bishop and her own journey to the trials, which includes winning marathons and some half marathons, a 70.3 Ironman, and then nabbing the OTQ. She does all that while being a wife and a mother of four kids. Very, very impressive stuff. That's Road to the Olympic Trials by The Rambling Runner. Check them out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, and Google Podcasts. I will include a link to that show in the show notes as well. My guest for today's episode is Matthew Futterman. He is the deputy sports editor at the New York Times. He was previously at the Wall Street Journal, but right now you might know him best for his book, Running to the Edge. It's a great summer read, and it paints an excellent, excellent portrait of Bob Larson's untraditional training methods and his plan to really make U.S. distance running relevant again in the early 2000s with the help of Meb Kofleski and Dina Castor. So beyond just being a running book, I think there are many life lessons that are included in this underdog story. The link to purchase the book is available in the show notes. I definitely recommend it to everyone, and I think you'll come away with that same conclusion after this episode. So without further ado, here is Matthew Futterman. Matt, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Oh, thanks for having me on. Uh, so today, you we're here at the New York Times offices. You just uh, rode your bike over. I mean, what what's your morning routine like? Is it usually a bike ride to work, or do you run to work sometimes? So I'm up pretty early. Uh, I usually, you know, I like to do like somewhere between, depending on the day, uh, 50 minutes to hour and a half of cardio unless i'm going unless it's my long run uh usually my long runs are on the weekends but like last thursday morning i did a long run uh and i do those pretty early and then uh hop on my bike i belong to a gym about 10 blocks away from uh where we are right now in midtown and um you know take a shower there and bike the rest of the way in and change my clothes here it's kind of it, it, it it's kind of a little bit of a uh 
you know, I don't want to say Superman routine because that because because <laughs> I'm any I'm the farthest thing from Superman. But uh, you know, I'm, my my backpack is always full with uh, changes of clothes and bathing suits and all kinds of stuff. What are you training for right now? So I'm gonna run uh, Chicago for the first time in October. I've been on this sort of Boston New York cycle. I've off. I've the last few years. I think three of the last four years. I've done the Hamptons Marathon also in the fall. I always found that to be a good warm up. But um, I've never run Chicago. Everyone talks about it. It's a great course, and uh, I'm super excited for that. So I'm going to run Chicago. If all goes according to plan, it'll be a nice, crisp Chicago day. I'll have a good day in Chicago. Three weeks later, I'll do New York for the charity I run for, and uh, that'll wrap up my fall. Yeah, I mean, with a marathon, it's always just so funny. You can train for six months and just pray for, like, the best weather, and then you get dealt with, like, the worst thing. Like, you ran 2018 Boston? Yeah, I ran 2018 Boston. You're one of the survivors. (laughs) I was a survivor, but I have to say, like, I've run Boston five times. That was my best time. Really? Yeah, I ran a 324 that day. And, you know, this year I was in great shape going in, and I showed up at the starting line, and it was 72 degrees and humid. And I just melt off when it when it gets to to that kind of you know stickiness, especially um, you live, we live in New York and we're training all winter in like thirty degrees, and then between mid March and mid April in the Northeast, the weather you know often turns, and so often that day in Boston can be the hottest day of the year so mm-hmm. far, and it's been that way for me. I think three of the five times I've run it, it's been a really warm day. And uh, so I've never really had a good race there. It's like the puzzle I just cannot solve. Well, you're one of the few people that I've met who, you know, had a really good day on that really awful weather day. 37 degrees, 20 (laughs) mile an hour headwind, you know, driving rain. Perfect. So, So what's that like, I guess, in the final miles for you when, I mean, everyone who I've talked to has just been like, oh, it was so miserable. I was, you know, totally... Uh, hypothermic don't remember too much but for you I mean are you looking at your watch and be like wow I'm gonna PR today so I was it was so cold when we started (laughs) I mean I remember just getting starting that race and I I could not feel I couldn't feel my toes uh, for the on either foot for the first three miles it was the same I'm a big skier and it was the same feeling that like when your boot is kind of tight and uh, it's a cold day, and you you just go numb in your toes, and it was that kind of feeling um, for the first three miles. And I remember thinking, like, you know, I really want to do this race. I've trained hard for it, but I don't want to lose any toes over this. So I don't know how far. I don't know how long this is gonna work. I don't, I, we'll see what happens. And after about three miles, I got the feeling back in my left toes. And at five miles, I could started to feel my right toes again. And I was like, oh, this is this is okay. Now let's just let's just run. And I was running fast because it was cold. So I was trying to warm up. Uh, and I got to the 10 mile. I wasn't really looking at my watch, but I got to the 10 mile mark and I looked down at my watch and it said 72 it said 112 something. So 72 minutes. And you know, my PR is 3.15, and I was just like, oh, you're fucking crazy. What are you <laughs> doing to yourself? Like, you're running into a 10, 20-mile-an-hour headwind in this weather, and you're just going to you're gonna die. And I think I turned off my watch oh, wow. at that point, and I said, just, you know, chill out. You're warmed up. Like, just survive this, get to the finish line, and live to tell about it. And I just kind of relaxed, and I think I ran, I ran just under like eight minute miles the rest of the way, uh, and I was basically fine. The one moment, the, I mean, it was. I remember I had just gotten through Wellesley. I was about fourteen miles in, and I had to go to the bathroom. And I usually never have to go to the bathroom during these races, and so I went into the one of the porta potties on the side, and. Uh, you know, it was the first moment that I wasn't being like, you know, pummeled by the rain. Right. And I remember taking a deep breath in there and being like, just letting the oxygen out and like pausing for a second and being like, okay, let's go do the rest of this thing. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was fine. I felt really good. Uh, it's, a, it's, one, it's the only time in Boston I've ever felt really good in the last few miles. 
It's so funny to hear a story where you're in a porta potty and you find this great moment. Right. All reflection. you want to do is get out of there. It used to smell terrible. It's supposed to smell terrible and all that, but uh, it was like this moment of porta potty peace that I have never, <laughs> I have never felt before. So I felt a special kinship with uh, Shalane, who also right? took a bathroom break around that time. Well, hers is only 13 seconds. It was in and out. It was the quickest I've ever seen anyone in the middle of a race. Right. <laughs> no, and she right, and it's a little harder for her to uh, her to do her business than me. <laughs> uh, you mentioned skiing. What's your background with running? I mean, when did you pick this up? So I, you know, it's it's funny that you say like, when did you pick this up? I mean, I remember like it was yesterday, my first race, which is when I was ten years old, and there was a this was sort of in the height of the running boom, the first running boom in 1979, and my town uh, in suburban New York had a five mile race, and uh, I entered it with my brothers. I was ten years old. I ran a 40-15. I uh, got nipped by my, I'm the youngest of three, I got nipped by my middle brother when uh, in, the, in the last mile, but my oldest brother, I beat him by several minutes. So that was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, in terms of like getting hooked, you know, I remember being that age and it was the early years of the New York Marathon. And so my dad and mom had some friends who would run it. You'd hear like, oh, this guy in town ran it. And I remember I was kind of obsessed with the marathon distance from the time I was a little kid. I followed it closely. You know, my heroes were Frank Shorter and Bill Rogers and Alberto Salazar. And I just assumed every kid who was a sports fan was obsessed with the marathon. Uh, turns out there weren't that many of us. <laughs> um, and I, I was never really fast. I played soccer. I played tennis. I got cut from my soccer team in high school. So then I fell onto the cross-country team. And I think I was like the seventh guy on the team, maybe sometimes. But I, I always love to run. The longer, the longer, the distance, the better I was. I could. I was never really particularly fast. I'm still not really fast. Uh, but if it's, but if we just need to go from point A to point B, and we got a lot of time to do it, <laughs> uh, I'll probably get there. So does you? You've done marathons. 23 of them. Had, wow. When was your first? My first was in 1992, Marine Corps. Yeah, four, I had about 102 fever. It was one of those things you train and you're looking forward to this thing your whole life. And uh, and then you get, to the, you, you get into town and I don't know if it was psychosomatic or nerves, but I just like got a little virus and I had like 101, 102 fever that day and but yeah you know, there was no way i wasn't going to give it a shot and uh, i think i ran like a 410 or something like that and i was shivering after the finish line and and all i could think of was like i gotta try and do that again well that's what was i what i was going to ask is meb walked away from his very first one thinking i'm never going to do this again goes on and runs 26 of them in his career did you so you said immediately you had that moment where you're like i gotta redeem myself yeah because it was just so i mean <laughs> i always say that uh you want to see a city on its best day show up on marathon day wherever it is um it's such a phenomenal thing uh and i'm so i feel like we're so lucky to live in this era where every major city has a marathon Every major city sort of treats its marathon the first day. Thousands of people generally come out, you know, both to run and also to cheer on the people who are running. You know, they give you bananas, they give you water, they give you oranges, they give you basically whatever you need. They give you all kinds of support. And I remember feeling that in Washington in 1992. And uh, I mean, I've, I've felt it every other every other place since. It's, it's such a you know, it's such a way we're, we're so um, separated these days and, you know, you're running a marathon and nobody asks you if you voted for Trump or Clinton. They ask you if you want to if you need some water. Uh, and it's it's just like it's a way we come together and it's a it's a way we feel sort of part of something larger than ourselves. And uh, I'm completely addicted to that feeling. Where have these marathons taken you? Because that's a that's a lot of ground to cover, and I'm sure it's not just big ma marathons like New York and Boston. I'm sure you've had really small ones too. I ran. I mean, the the one that really stands out is Big Sur, uh, which is just the most phenomenal experience running from Big Sur to Carmel, straight up Highway One. I grew up in New York, but I've always been in love with Northern California, and you know that is 
if there's a more beautiful uh, stretch of coastline in the world, um, you'll have to show it to me because that's about as good as it gets. And as a marathoner, you run straight up that coast. That's one where there isn't any support, basically, <laughs> but that's by design because you're supposed to just sort of, you know, commune with the waves uh, lapping up against the cliffs. And it's it's just phenomenal. So uh, I t- that is the farthest one from home that uh, I've done. I've done New York. I've done Boston. I did Washington. I uh, did a little marathon in Connecticut. I've done that, uh, the, the, the Hamptons Marathon uh, out in Long Island a few times. So, but it's mainly been, it's mainly been New York and Boston. I haven't done the sort of world tour travel, uh, travel thing uh, that a lot of people have been, have done. I think it's mainly because I always think, well, you know, when I go to Europe, I kind of go there to eat and drink and not to, and and I run in the morning and tour around and go to museums and stuff like that. I kind of wonder if going to, you know, going to these great, foreign capitals and running a race would uh, ruin my vacation well so the thing is i've run i think the first time i ran berlin i you know it's a pretty much a 26.2 mile tour of the city but after the race i had a moment to think and i was like honestly i i don't remember where i was because you're just so focused on miles and and like your splits and just getting to the next aid station uh that you really don't have that chance to really take in the city and soak it in so um yeah i, I mean I, I think that's i do agree with with your point on it's like you're not really experiencing the city as much when although maybe you're experiencing the city maybe it's the best way to experience yeah, the city because <laughs> you're experiencing it at at your best i mean i've been to london many times i, I i'd love to run the marathon because I, i'm a huge anglophile and I, I i absolutely love london uh and i'd like to run run berlin because uh, I was I was actually there right after the wall fell in 1989. I was in college and I was traveling to a term abroad, and ended up in Berlin on the day they opened up the Brandenburg Gate, um, which was in December, you know, just one month after the wall fell. And I was in that sort of massive crowd that you see pictures of. And we, me and my friends, we spent. We spent the next two or three days. We went to the hardware store and bought hammers, and we just hacked at the wall for three days with everybody from Berlin. So it's a place that's uh, very close to my heart. Yeah, and that's the final stretch right uh, before you get to the finish line is going under the gates. Yeah. Right, I'm sure. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's such an amazing city. I was back there a couple of years ago. New, you you mentioned growing up in New York. What is what is it like, I guess, for you to run the New York City Marathon and going through? Because a lot of it is in Brooklyn, and I'm sure like it's just you're just so familiar with so many of the streets that you're going through. I am. It's, it's, it is, it's changed a lot. My experience of it has changed a lot. I remember when I was first running it in the nineties and I was in my twenties and uh, I'd gone to school in upstate New York and grown up in, you know, right near the city. And so I knew a lot of people, um, knew a lot of young people in New York. And I remember running up, first avenue and running in manhattan and i kept hearing people call my name and i didn't you know you don't really you're sort of just going by them but you keep hearing hey futterman Futterman," and you just and it was really cool uh that that was just like a very special thing i don't know that many people anymore (laughs) no i still know i still know plenty of people in new york but it's a little bit of a different experience first avenue is a little different than it was back then it used to be like the extension of the college dormitories. It used to be sort of like what Brooklyn is now um, or some of the other boroughs are now. So it's it's fascinating to see how the city has changed during my, uh, you know, 20-something years of running the marathon. You used to run those 12 miles, those first 12 miles in Brooklyn, and there were a lot of really dead spots. It was very there was it was it was sort of noisy in Bay Ridge, uh, but then it wasn't real noisy until really you got to Fort Greene. I mean that that area of 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 Fourth Avenue that's I guess just below Park Slope and you know where Carroll Gardens is and you know they're just it, it it wasn't as populated I don't think then as it as it is now and so it was kind of dead on Fourth Avenue. And then Williamsburg was just completely dead because it was largely, 
and it was largely Hasidic Jews um, who don't really participate very much in the marathon. If they do, they do so very quietly. And obviously that's transformed completely into <laughs> like the ultimate sort of hipster neighborhood. <laughs> so that's just, you know, blaring. It's just, it's just a lot, it's a much noisier marathon than it used to be. And everyone talks about the screams on First Avenue and the bedlam on First Avenue. First Avenue's gotten a lot older in the <laughs> last 25 years, so it's just not nearly as noisy as it was uh, back when it was just all populated by, you know, yuppies. And how have you changed as a runner in terms of just, like, knowledge? Because I feel like being a writer it, within sports, and especially within, I guess, running, it's it, you have this access to being able to, I mean, through covering stories uh, and profiling some of these top athletes, you have this connection to them where, you know, even after a story is done, you could always shoot them a text and ask them about, like, your own training if you have any sort of questions and that kind of stuff. So for you, I guess, what, how has being a writer, I guess, like, also played a role in your uh, development as a, as a runner? Because, I mean, working on this book that, that you have, I'm sure you're much smarter as a result of it. Yeah, I've gotten, I've definitely gotten faster in my <laughs> 40s. I mean, I have a funny little running history. I ran five marathons in my 20s. Didn't run, I ran every day, but didn't run any races for about 14 years. And then got back into it uh, in 2011. And I've been running a lot of races since then. <laughs> um, also sort of coincides with my intense period of writing about mm -hmm. running. And yes, you mentioned uh, my book, Running to the Edge, which is largely about Bob Larson, who's, Mepka, I knew him for years as Mebka Flesky's coach, and then uh, realized he had this phenomenal backstory, and he's really sort of the guy who taught the world how to run far fast, uh, and did it in a very sort of quiet way, and used these, these hippie runners from the 1970s in San Diego um, to, they were his lab rats essentially, and that was where he came up with the formula that is, that you know, the the East Africans really adopted, and took it to uh, to their supremacy. But in terms of how that's affected my running, I mean, it's it's I do these stories, and uh, I spend a lot of time talking to running coaches, and I'm always coming back with all kinds of different workouts. There's no question that Bob Larson has been coaching me for ever since I started working on this book. Uh, he doesn't, he doesn't quite realize it, but, um, you know, he's, he's always, he's, whenever we're having any of our, you know, countless, endless conversations and he mentions something, you know, Meb did in the run up to the Olympics in 2004 or Dina did ahead of Chicago, uh, also in the 2000, in the, in, in the aughts, it's it sort of plays into your head and you're like oh why don't, why don't I try that well I'll try I'll try that tomorrow and see if that works um, so it's really it's made me a much much smarter runner I don't think I did I really didn't do a lot of speed work um, before I sort of got deep into writing about running uh, it, it, speed work hurts <laughs> and um, <laughs> you know you really got to be committed to it but once you start doing it, you it, you see the changes, and um, it it it's I would say that's sort of probably the biggest impact that and you know what we call tempo runs, uh, which originally Bob started doing in the sixties and seventies, uh, calling them threshold runs, and you know going to your edge, going to that spot where if you go one click faster, you're not going to be able to breathe, and if you go a click or two slower. You're just gonna be. You're gonna feel that you're not pushing yourself as hard as you could be pushing yourself. And that idea of teaching your body how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable—that really has made all the difference. Where did the process for this book really begin? Because it, um, and wh how did the idea come to you? Because it's really interesting. Because that's, I mean, to find out your reason why, also incorporates. It's like why we're running so long and so so fast it's tying these big whys together well i always want to write a book about running because i've been doing it for so long it's uh you know it's very very close to my heart um but i didn't necessarily want to write a book just about you know myself and my own thoughts about running i just didn't think it was very important to me but i didn't think it was it was outstanding enough to carry 
a whole book. And there are some phenomenal books in that vein. I mean, right now I'm in the middle of uh, Katie Arnold's Running Home, uh, which is an amazing book about using running to you know, get through the grieving for the loss of her father. Uh, but I don't, I don't have a story like that. Um, and yet I have these very strong emotions about running. And I think you know, at the heart of it is this idea of rebelliousness which is what I feel when, you know, I'm running 20 miles or 22 miles uh, on a Saturday morning. And I think the the reason that emotion is so powerful for me is because that's where the sport was when I first got to know it as a little kid. I mean, back in the 60s and 70s, when those when those guys were running, I mean, that there was nothing more radical that you could do than go run 20 miles on a Saturday morning. I mean, these it was a very sort of fringe activity, very countercultural. You look at sort of the first um, poster boy of American distance running, and uh, it's, it's Prefontaine, who had the long hair and the mustache, and, you know, that was the guy that everybody looked up to, him and, and Shorter, who was a little more of an establishment figure. But still, he was doing this activity that was very rebellious. And... So I still feel that even though the sport is main, mainstream, that's really an emotion that is at the heart of it and always will be. And so I was looking for a story that would really capture that those ideas. And I, like I said, I had known Bob for a long time as Meb's coach. And then I learned through this documentary um, about him that there was a mention and a little bit of the documentary was about this group of hippie runners that I mentioned before named the Hummel Toads that he coached in the 60s and 70s. And, and I saw a picture of those guys. And they had the scraggly hair and the long beards, and they, they looked kind of like the Doobie Brothers or the Eagles <laughs> or some other like early 70s rock band. And I just looked at that picture, and I said, uh, I got to get to know those guys, and that might be my story. And that's really where it started. It was a matter of, you know, are these guys the characters that can carry this book? Is what was going on with Bob? And Bob, who is, who is, you know, on the face of it, you know, as sort of humble and quiet a figure as there is, really has this huge rebellious streak of his own. And, you know, the very ideas of the training methods he came up with were revolutionary in the sense that um, back when he started coaching, you know, the idea that you could train your heart and make it stronger, um, that was thought to be a terrible idea. <laughs> you know, people, people thought that if you were to strain your heart after the age of 35, you would inevitably have a really bad heart attack and you would die, uh, which is crazy. I mean, and, and, Bob's idea was no, the heart the heart is a muscle like any other muscle, and if you train it, it will get stronger. Uh, which and so he set out on what's the best way to train it, and there were the two schools: the Lydiard school of train don't strain, lots of volume, and then I, I would say the Eastern European school. You know, Zad Emil Zadapek was their hero who did these crazy intervals over and over again, and Bob had two questions: why do the intervals have to be so short? And why do the long runs have to be so slow? And that's where he essentially came up with the idea of you know running to your edge, running to that threshold, pushing yourself, um, and doing the tempo run for five miles, for eight miles, for ten miles, as long as really as long as you can carry it there. Were there any challenges in in writing a book about someone? Well, here's the thing. I think I think Bob Larson within the running community is like this huge deal. And then within just like the general big sports landscape, like you said, I think a lot of people just knew him as Meb's coach. But beyond that, not so much. The Robert Lusitani documentary was great because I think I, I sat through it and I watched it in Boston a couple years back. And I was I thought it was it was this deep dive into someone who I didn't know was so historic and, had, and played such a big role in all the success. So I think the, the way The New York Times writes about running is great because they make these like it could be, you know, a I'm trying to think like a Sarah Sellers story. I think you wrote that one, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. it, sure. it makes a person like that appeal to a much wider audience outside of just the running audience. So when writing this book, what was that like, I guess, for you to keep in mind, like 
Bob Larson's a big deal in running and people know this side of him, but don't know the full story. And at the same time, making this appeal to just everyone and just someone who isn't a runner. Well, I think the, what made it easier is that ethos that exists in running, which is that, you know, we all line up on this, on the same starting line, at least in the big marathons and 10 Ks and things like that. Obviously, you and I aren't going to be, you know, lining up uh, on the track in Tokyo in, in next <laughs> summer. Um, but you know, for for the road races, you know, there's a real sort of communal idea uh, that what the elite runners do is not that different than what everyday runners do, and that ethos is passed down from the elite runners. Um, you would never you i mean i've covered just about every sport there is and there is not another sport where the people who are the best in the world consider the the weekend warriors at all a part of their world they they just don't i mean phil mickelson and tiger woods i mean they don't look at guys who are playing uh you know saturdays at their country club they don't really look at them as as golfers in the sense that they are golfers but Meb and Abdi and Dina and Sarah Sellers, they seem to like nothing more than to hang around with runners, trade ideas about workouts, talk about training. Um, Abdi Abdi Rahman said to me in the fall, uh, you know, when I, I sort of said to him, I was like, I don't really want to compare what I do to what you do because we were talking about marathons. And he said, no way, man. And he said, we, we each experience the same pain. We just experience it at different times. And so there's that idea that, you know, this is a very elemental sport. You know, all you need is a pair of shoes. And most people, some people don't even use a pair of shoes, but, you know, <laughs> pair of shorts and your legs, one foot in front of the other. We've been doing it for tens of thousands of years. And so the idea of what you do um, to go faster, which is something that, you know, you and I feel and, uh, I mean, you're faster than me, uh, and will be for a while. But um, that it's 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 very elemental both to lay runners, and it's and it's what elite runners feel as well. They just we all are just looking to to push ourselves and to challenge ourselves uh, because we know that's kind of where the magic can happen. Bob, being a guy who's behind the scenes for a lot of you know Meb's success and all that, isn't I mean one of the most uh, I guess like he's not doing a ton of interviews and he isn't like on when they're not showing him on the TV broadcast enough when you were in the process of writing this book uh, was it tough to get him to open up or what was what was his role like no it's not tough at all <laughs> he just he just didn't I mean when I told him I wanted to write a book about the toads and him he said oh that that's the worst idea I've ever heard <laughs> I mean he said who the hell is gonna want to read that and I said, well, I don't know, Bob. I think you, I think you got a pretty cool story here, and I think you've, uh, you've done some pretty cool things. And why don't we just sit around and talk? Why don't you just tell me where it began and how it started? And um, so once I got him rolling on that, uh, I, I think he started to realize, yeah, we did some pretty special things. But that's, you know, that's a credit to who Bob is. I mean, he would have would have had every right. 20 years ago to have published a book and called it the Larson way and become a brand and gone on the circuit and speaking tours and done all kinds of stuff like that. But that's just not who he is. He was all about the love of the sport. He was all about the competition and was just never about self promotion. So in terms of getting him to open up, you know, that's that's just what journalists do. Yeah. I mean, they get reporters. I mean, they reporters just get people to tell them their stories. How much of uh, this book did, did came to you like while while you were running or anything like that? I mean, and running as as kind of a way to think of what this chapter is going to be about. Or do you, do you have those moments? I I tell people all the time that um, I do all my best writing when I'm running. And I'm not joking at all. I mean, this this book, I was wrestling with, like, how to structure it and what the voice would be. And uh, I was in Rome on vacation in 
um, the Christmas of 2016, and I was waking up early in the morning and running along the river there up to the 1960 Olympic Stadium, and it's great. You can literally sort of run in the footsteps of Bikila, even though he didn't, even though he didn't act that marathon. I don't actually finished on the track. <laughs> um, but you know, it's the bare, it, that's the, that's the place where he got his medals and everything. Obviously it's a, an amazing Olympics. So, and I was reading Frank Shorter's memoir, um, my marathon, I think it's called terrific book. And I was wrestling with, I knew I wanted to write this book, but I was wrestling with like what the voice was, how it would be structured and it really sort of came to me during those runs um, that I was going to tell it in the present tense, that it was going to sort of start with Bob in Minnesota and sort of tell his stories and that it would be it would be interspersed with each member of the team and, and that the central question of the book, that the book was going to try and answer, was why we run. Um, and re- that, was an, that, was a, that was what I wanted to call it at one point, but that was the title of somebody else's book, so I didn't <laughs> want to do that. Um, but the, that all sort of came to me there. And then throughout the writing process, which took, you know, the better part of the next year and a little more, um, next year and a half, I would say it, it, I would, yeah, whenever I was having trouble with chapters, I would just think about them while I was running and, you know, think about lines that would come into my head and, Maybe I'm starting it in the wrong place. It's uh, I don't know what it is exactly about the activity of running, which can, if you have a mind that works in a certain way, but can sort of jumpstart um, and order things uh, in a very sort of peaceful way. It, that it works for me. You said the the question you wanted to kind of answer was why why we run when the reader gets to the very end of the book what do you hope uh is the answer that they they come to without giving away too much of uh the book well what i I mean what i hope is that it's it's the book that makes um you know that can make you faster and make you love running even more and make you feel like you want to go out for a run uh which people have told me which is which is really really cool uh that that that, that's what that's the feeling they get so i mean I, i wouldn't I don't think I would do what I do. I mean, I've been a sports writer for about 20 years, and I've been a journalist for about 25 years. And I don't think I would do what I do, which is spend a lot of time thinking about sports, if I didn't think that what I was writing about, the stories that I was telling, the stories that we were telling, uh, could help people in some way understand themselves and understand what it means to be human and what really drew me into this book the sort of larger lessons is that the three main tenets of Bob Larson's approach to both running and life is you know the first idea of like I said pushing yourself to your edge learning how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable the second one is you got is is training with a group relying on the team relying on your friends, um, lifting them up and they will lift you up, uh, that the group is more powerful than the individual. It's that old cliche, you know, the power of the pack is in the wolf and the power of the wolf is in the pack. Uh, and, and I think that's something that we, you know, we so often forget that, um, you know, it's such an individual pursuit seemingly, but it's, it's, it can be such a team-oriented thing as well. And I don't know anyone who has run with a team who didn't have more fun running with a team than they did running alone. So there's that idea. And then the third one is you know, this idea, and this was really, really important in the 2000s when he tried to rescue American distance running when the East Africans were so dominant. And there were all these theories about that their bodies were different, that they evolved differently on the Serengeti. They had longer Achilles tendons. It's just all kinds of like pseudoscience crap. And Bob said, you know, no, that's that's bullshit. I mean, like they work harder. So what he had to convince people of is that where you were born and how you were born, how much money you have, who your sponsor is, like none of that is your destiny. Your destiny is what you make of it. Your destiny is the work that goes into it. You know, if we work harder, if we do the training that I was doing with the Toads back in the 70s when you know I brought these no-names to the 1976 National Cross Country Championships and they blew everybody away 
because they were training differently than everybody else was. If we do that and we do it at altitude, you know, we can be as good as anyone in the world. And I think like those three tenets um, can really help people understand the, you know, the main thing that can get you out of bed in the morning, which is that you know, I can be better tomorrow than I was yesterday. As a fan of the sport, where do you see some of these Larson influences now? Everywhere. I mean, you do not, wherever there's a running group, that's Larson. I mean, it seems so, it's, it, I mean, it seems so second nature now, like, oh, who's he running with? He's running with Hoka and Flagstaff. Or well, what about them? Oh, they're with Schumacher's group in Portland. Oh, he's with Salazar and then in the Oregon Project. Brooks, this guy's Brooks Hansen. And it's, it's as much a part of who they are as, you know, where, you know, where some football player went to college or something like that. I mean, and there were no running groups in the 90s. And that's, and that was sort of the central thing that made Americans competitive again was Bob saying, we're going to raise some money. And he got together with the Running USA folks, and he said, we need to raise some money. We need to get a group of runners. We need to go to Mammoth. We need to live together. We need to work really hard, and we're going to help each other. And that, and then what happened after that is you, Meb and Dina had to have started having this like great success. And sports is the ultimate copycat business um, because there's no there's no patents, there's no copyrights on these things, and so people see something that works and they copy it <laughs> yeah. and they do it. And the shoe companies and running, they see. You know, something's going to have success. They throw some money at it because it doesn't cost that much money. I mean, it's a it's a fraction of what, you know, Zion Williamson's sneaker contract is going to be to support a running group for a year. So everywhere you see a running group, that is, I mean, that that is Larson. Uh, every And every everywhere you see Americans going to train at elevation, that's Larson. Because I'm not saying... I'm not saying that nobody did it at all, but it wasn't being done in an organized way in the 90s, and the results showed that. Yeah. Uh, we, we qualified, we only had one man in the marathon in, um, in Sydney in, two, in 2000, and that was the charity spot. Uh, we didn't qualify anybody for it. And the, you know, four years later, we had a guy on the medal stand. That's a, that's, that's a big change. Yeah. Uh, kind of looking at, the process of writing a book and using maybe the marathon as like an analogy. So you're brainstorming. It's kind of like when you're, when you're training and the writing, you know, it's you going along, you know, the miles, where are you at right now in terms of just if, if publishing the book is the finish line, is this the, the victory lap, the celebration where we're, we're with, with you and in, in this book? Well, I want to write more books. Yeah. Um, and I want to run more marathons. <laughs> there you go. So, uh, it never, it never really ends. Um, the, the, the really cool thing about this book, uh, as, you know, as I've mentioned, running is like super important to me, both as something you do for fitness, something you do to you know, be with other people, um, and something you use as sort of the prism through which you approach your life. Uh, the really cool thing about publicizing this book is it's just doing what I always do, which is talk to other runners about running in life and going around the country and doing that or going on, you know, great podcasts like this one <laughs> and talking about it. Uh, so it, it, hopefully it, it never really ends. Um, I wrote this great book. There's other people with great stories. There's other aspects of this sport. I'd love to explore, uh, the, the thing I, I mean, the thing I love, I do, I do a fair amount of hot yoga. The th one of the things I love about yoga is that it's, it's called your practice. There's, it, it's just practice. It's always, and that's sort of like, you know, what are, we, what are we practicing for? You're not practicing. You're just practicing for your practice tomorrow. Uh, it never really ends until it all ends. And, um, you know, hopefully if I, if I can keep my health, uh, it'll keep going for a little while. My friend uh, Pat Morris, who works here, runs with the the Times Run Club. He t uh, texted me this morning because I told him I was coming in here, and he said, "Well, I'm reading his book right now, and I'm gonna and I almost missed my my train stop." Uh, so, 
for you, I guess, what has been the most, I guess, like gratifying or like really cool moment hearing other people reading your book? Because, you know, David Epstein has the moment where he saw the photo of Obama picking up his book at a bookstore. So what has been that moment for you so far? I mean, I'd say, uh, unfortunately, I don't I don't know that Obama has picked up my book yet. Um, so I don't quite ha- I don't I don't have, I don't have that one yet. It's been it's it's been really sweet to see Bob sort of get the recognition um, that he deserves on a sort of broader scale. I mean, he was he was sort of well known to those who know him well um but he didn't have he he wasn't a co-founder of nike so he didn't have the nike marketing machine sort of building him up as this legend like you know bowerman um and you know he always sort of stayed in the shadow so i i think bringing great satisfaction and pleasure to a guy who was a pioneer of the sport who's 80 years old now, lives on top of a mountain in Brentwood, California, is still running. Sometimes, some days runs up the mountain, two miles, straight up. <laughs> um, a hill that would wear you and me out. And, uh, you know, bringing pleasure to him and seeing him come together. We had an event in San Diego. Seeing him come together with these dozens of, and more than that, scores of runners that he coached and seeing all of them together and uh, allowing him to understand that this this life he lived um, was a really good has been a really good life and is so appreciated and that he's so appreciated and that he has touched so many people uh, in life seeing that and and bringing him that satisfaction uh, has been has been really sweet Awesome. Well, Matt, I've got final questions I ask every guest. So these four of the four I ask every guest, the two might not ap- uh, apply to you. So the first one is mainly for the athletes. What's the funniest drug testing story you've got? But uh, you probably have not been drug tested after a race, have you? I haven't. But when I ran, <laughs> um, when I, I, I set my P- marathon PR in 2017 in New York, it was 3.15.58. Uh, I got a text message from Travis Tiger that said, please re- please report to doping control immediately, <laughs> which, was, which was very satisfying that, uh, you know, my, my, my USADA crony, uh, Travis Tiger, had, uh, had noticed and, uh, and was suspicious. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, what's the meanest thing you've read about yourself on Let's Run.com? Have there been any comments about you on there? Uh, you know, I don't read... The, message the comment section so much. <laughs> um, I don't read the comment section very much about my stories. I don't spend a lot of time on my Amazon reviews. People are people are gonna say what they're gonna say about you, um, and you just gotta sort of you just gotta sort of live with it and roll with it, and uh, it's gonna be there. And if you spend too much time worrying about that stuff, you'll uh, you'll drive yourself crazy. If you could go on a run anywhere in the world with anyone from history, they don't even have to be a real person. They could be fictional. Assuming they could hold a nice conversational pace with you, where would this run take place and who would it be with? I think, uh, can I can I grab a couple of names from there? Sure. A couple yeah, yeah. of them. Uh, I, I think I'd probably want to run with, just because they were such a formative part of my childhood, I'd want to run... Um, with uh, Harold Abrams and Eric Little, the two runners from Chariots of Fire. Okay. And I'd probably want to run with Little up in the Scottish Highlands, uh, which is where he did his training. And I guess I'd want to run with Abrams on on that beach in England before they set off to where they're where they're running in the opening scenes. Um, those were, those were, that was you know just it's just about the greatest sports or running movie ever made and. It's, it had such an impact on me, and also um, being Jewish and Abrams being being Jewish himself, um, he was sort of always a, a long a hero of mine. 
Yeah, I've got a friend of mine who's working on a podcast series about Chariots of Fire, so that'll be pretty interesting once that's uh, all done. I will be I will be the first one to download it. <laughs> um, and then the last one is uh, not running related whatsoever. It's just kind of a, a fun question that assesses kind of what the how big of a risk taker these athletes are. Sometimes it's uh, you get twenty five shots from half court. If you make one, you win twenty five million dollars. If you don't make any, you go to jail for twenty five years. Would you attempt the shots? 25, uh, probably not because I don't really care about the money. <laughs> Good. That's a great answer. I think, I think that's the perfect answer. But some, some of these athletes, they're big risk takers. Molly Huddle says she'd, she'd take it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if there was some other kind of payoff, maybe, but, um, but probably not. I mean, I'm, I, I I don't. I'm not looking for twenty five million dollars, <laughs> and I certainly don't want to go to uh, get locked up for twenty five years. I'm sort of good with where my life is right now. You Perfect. know, if I can go, if I can go running most mornings during the week, or and I can't go every day because uh, I'm getting a little older and uh, <laughs> you got to do some cross training. Um, but uh, if I can, if I can do that and uh, be around people I like and and love throughout the day, uh, I'm good with that. I don't need the. I don't need the money. Matt, so the book is available wherever books are sold. Wherever books are sold, Running to the Edge, a band of misfits and uh, the guru who unlocked the secrets of speed. That's And that's Bob Larson. I think we've given that punchline away. We uh, That would be... That'd, that'd be a great movie title. Has uh, have, have movie talks been in the works yet? There have been some producers who have reached out to me um, about it, and they're they're having the conversations <laughs> that they that I guess those people have. Uh, and would it be great to see this thing on screen? Um, sure. Uh, my, my brother's a filmmaker and a screenwriter and that's sort of what he does. And I, and I, and I do what I do. And, uh, so I'm going to keep my head down and try and try and get another great book to write. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Thanks so much for having me. It's great. Many thanks to Matt for taking the time for that interview. Again, I've included the link to running to the edge in the show notes. I've actually got it on my shelf next to some of my other favorites, like Running with the Buffaloes, Today We Die Little, and, you know, it's my running shelf, so you know it's good when it's in that company. Uh, And as always, check out the other shows on the Sidious Mag Podcast Network. It's looking like Showrunners with Scott Fobble could end up being a weekly show. He's on an absolute roll. He is three episodes deep. We just dropped a new one where he talks about Rocky IV with Stephanie Bruce. That's one of my favorite movies. I've seen it a number of times. But hearing the two of them chat for about 40 minutes about it is really, really funny. I learned a lot from it, actually, too. There's Scott does his research and throws around these fun facts. It's great. So if you like movies and you like runners, that is the podcast for you. The link is included in the show notes for you to check out. Once again, a big thank you to our sponsor, The Road to the Olympic Trials podcast is out now. It's the latest show from The Rambling Runner. Subscribe today. Link is in the show notes. And lastly, a reminder to support the Sidious Mag Podcast Network by pledging any dollar amount on Patreon so we can continue to produce these shows and keep bringing you some fresh content. Visit patreon.com slash Mag. And before you shut off my voice, I urge you to take a quick second to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you enjoy the show. This just helps us uh, move up within the iTunes charts. They're doing something different with categories now, so it's even more impressive to uh, for other people to be able to discover and find the show. That does it for this episode of the Sidious Mac Podcast. I've been your host, Chris Chavez, wishing you some happy and healthy running. And as always, legs are feeling good. Shout out to Nikki Hiltz for dropping that on the NBC broadcast after making her first Worlds team. It was awesome. <laughs>